You're listening to Call of the Herald, book one of the Dawning of Power trilogy, a podcast novel written and read by Brian Rathbone. For more information and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening. Prologue Within his cabin, General Dempsey adjusted his uniform, making certain every medal was straight and every button oriented properly. Moving automatically to counter the movements of his ship was normally as natural to him as breathing, but he felt unsteady on his feet, as if years of sailing had suddenly been forgotten. It was not a feeling he was accustomed to. At sea or just about anywhere on Godsland, his power was undeniable. His orders obeyed without question. There was one place, however, where his power was surpassed, and even a man of his accomplishments must exercise great caution. Adderhold, seat of the Jean Empire. It was from there that Archmaster Belegra ruled with an unforgiving will, and it was too there that General Dempsey was destined. He had no reason to expect anything but a warm welcome, given his success, but there was an uneasy feeling in his gut. Again, automatically, he adjusted his uniform, as if a single stitch out of place could decide his fate. The general cursed himself for such weakness, yet he jumped when there came a knock at his cabin door. After cursing himself again, he answered in his usual commanding tone. Come. Mate Pibbs presented himself and saluted. Adderhold is within sight, sir. We've been cleared by the sentry ships, and there's a slip reserved for us. Do you wish to be on deck when we land, sir? General Dempsey nodded, and Mate Pibbs saluted again before turning on his heel. To some, the salute is a source of great pride and a feeling of power, and most times General Dempsey felt much the same, but on this day it felt like mockery. After a final check of his uniform, he made his way to the prow. From there, he watched Adderhold grow larger and more intimidating with every passing moment. It was a feeling that should have passed long before but the builders of Adderhold had done their job well. The place looked as if it could swallow their entire fleet in a single strike. When they reached the docks, General Dempsey was unsure of what to think. There was no fanfare, no throng awaited the returning army, and there was not so much as a victory dinner to celebrate their conquest of an entire continent. The Greatland was theirs to rule, yet Adderhold bustled with preparations for war. Barges surrounded the island, and they sat low in the water, piled high with grain and supplies, ready to transport the goods to the waiting armada. These were not the usual preparations for an assault on a coastal province. The scale of their provisions foretold a lengthy sea voyage, and the taste of victory turned to bile. General Dempsey knew long before the page arrived with his new orders that the church had declared holy war. 
He tried to convince himself otherwise, but what he saw could only mean an invasion of the Godfist, a preemptive strike intended to stave off the prophecy. He thought it was sheer madness. Archmaster Belegra would ruin everything by sending them on a fool's quest. This was a hunt for some fantasized adversary, one not only destined to destroy the entire Jean nation, but also one that might herald the return of a goddess Archmaster Belegra and the devotees of the Jean church had both dreamed of and feared. The devout believed that Istra would imbue them with miraculous gifts, but that her presence would also mark the return of their greatest adversary. In the face of such fanaticism, General Dempsey struggled to maintain his equilibrium. To him, the Jean beliefs made little sense. Though he had played his role in many ceremonies, he believed none of it. He simply did what the church asked of him because it furthered his own goals. His military genius had only served to strengthen the Jean and their beliefs, and though it had gained him the power he desired, he suddenly wondered if it had been a mistake, a grave and deadly mistake. To say his army was unprepared for an assault on the Godfist was a gross understatement. Two-thirds of his men came from lands that had only recently been conquered. Few were trained, and fewer still were loyal. With his experienced and trusted men spread throughout his regiments, he was barely able to maintain control. He knew it was a suicide mission, and it would be years before they were ready to undertake a long-distance campaign. Orders to get his army ready for the invasion confirmed the insanity, and when he saw them, he requested an immediate audience with Archmaster Belegra, under the pretense of misunderstanding the mission. It was highly unusual for any member of the armies to meet with the Archmaster in person, but General Dempsey felt he was entitled. He and his men had offered up their lives for the Empire and they deserved to know why they were being thrown away. Days passed before he was granted the audience, and that gave him time to ponder every word he might use to implore the Archmaster to change his mind. When a page finally arrived with his summons, the uncertainty was festering in his belly. Archmaster Belegra was the only person with enough power to have him executed and his every instinct warned that the wrong choice of words could send him to the headsman's block. A slight figure in dark robes greeted General Dempsey with little more than a slight bow. Though his features were concealed within a deep hood, the general knew of him. He was the nameless boy whose insolence had cost him his tongue. As he led General Dempsey to a private hall, he served as a silent warning. This had the potential to be a very dangerous encounter. When he entered the hall, General Dempsey saw Archmaster Belegra swathed in thick robes and huddled in an ornate chair that was pulled close to the fire. Though the years had barely grayed his hair, he looked like a feeble old man. As austere as ever, he did not acknowledge General Dempsey in any way, 
as if he were oblivious to his presence. A humble servant of the Jean requests consideration of the church, General Dempsey said in a polite tone, trying to sound unassuming, but he feared it came out sounding forced and insincere. Archmaster Belegra did not look at him, nor did he speak. He simply extended his right hand and waited. The general did not hesitate in moving to the archmaster's side, taking his hand and kissing the signet ring, wishing to dispense with protocol as quickly as possible. The church recognizes her child and will suffer you to speak. With all due respect, your eminence, I must ask you to reconsider this course of action. Launching an attack on such a distant nation when we've barely secured the land surrounding us will put everything we've achieved at risk. General Dempsey was more direct than was advisable, but he was determined and pushed on. It's not that I don't believe the prophecies, but sending two-thirds of our strength on a... Archmaster Belegra raised an eyebrow, and Dempsey stopped. He knew he was treading in dangerous waters, and he preferred to keep his head. The prophecies are quite clear on this matter, General, but I will refresh your memory if I must. Vestra, god of the sun, has ruled Godsland skies for nearly three thousand years, but he will not always reign alone. Istra, Goddess of the night shall return to preside over the night skies. A harbinger shall be born of her hand and will be revealed by the power they wield. Thus the advent of Istra shall be heralded. Faithful of the church, beware, for the herald of Istra shall desire your destruction and will endeavor to undo all you have wrought. General Dempsey despaired. The prophecies were impossible to argue, since no proof could be offered to discredit them. They were sacred and above reproach. It is your responsibility to protect this nation and all the inhabitants of the Greatland, Archmaster Belegra continued. The Herald of Istra poses an imminent threat to the Church and the entire Jean Empire. The holy documents have rewarded us with clues regarding the timing of Istra's return, and we must use these divine gifts to our full advantage. To do otherwise would be sacrilege and blasphemy. Is that clear? General Dempsey nodded, mute. He struggled to find words that would drive away the madness, but they remained beyond his grasp. You have your orders, General. You know your duty. The army is to set sail for the Godfist by the new moon and is not to return without the Herald of Istra. Go forth with the blessings of the Jean Church. Oh. 
calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Chapter 1 Life is the greatest of all mysteries. And though I seek to solve its many riddles, my deepest fear is that I will succeed. C.C. Bajur, Philosopher Immersed in its primordial glow, a comet soared through space with incredible speed. Three thousand years had passed since it last shed its light upon the tiny blue planet known to its inhabitants as Godsland, and the effects had been cataclysmic. A mighty host of comets followed the same elliptical orbit as the first as they returned from the farthest reaches of the solar system. Their light had already charged the atmosphere of Godsland, and the comets themselves would soon be visible to the naked eye. The cycle of power would begin anew. Radiant energy, though still faint, raced toward Godsland, bearing the power of change. As the force angled over the natural harbor where the fishing vessels were moored for the night, it soared beyond them, over the Pinnock Valley, and nothing barred its path. Beyond a small town amid foothills dotted with farmsteads, it raced toward a barn where a young woman dutifully swept the floor. A slight tingle and a brief twitch of her eyebrows caused Katrin to stop a moment, just as a chance wind cast the pile of dirt and straw back across the floor. It was not the first thing to go wrong that morning, and she doubted it would be the last. She was late for school. Again. Education was not a birthright. It was a privilege, something Master Edling repeatedly made more than clear. Those of station and power attended his lessons to gain refinement and polish. But for those from the countryside, the purpose was only to stave off the epidemic of ignorance. His sentiments had always rankled, and Katrin wondered if the education was worth the degradation she had to endure. She had already mastered reading and writing, and she was more adept at mathematics than most. But those were skills taught to the younger students by Master Jarvis, who was a kind, personable teacher. Katrin missed his lessons. Those approaching maturity were subjected to Master Edling's oppressive views and bland historical teachings. It seemed to her that she learned things of far more relevance when she worked on the farm, and the school lessons seemed a waste of time. Master Edling detested tardiness, and Katrin was in no mood to endure another of his lectures. His anger was only a small part of her worries on that day, though. The day was important, different, 
Something was going to happen. Something big. She could feel it. The townies, as Catherine and her friends called those who placed themselves above everyone else, seemed to feed on the teacher's disdainful attitude. They adopted his derogatory manner, which often deteriorated into pranks and, lately, violence. Though she was rarely a target, Catherine hated to see her friends treated so poorly. They deserved better. Pete and Ross was the primary source of their problems. It was his lead the others followed. He seemed to take pleasure in creating misery for others, as if their hardships somehow made him more powerful. Perhaps he acted that way to impress Rosette and the other pretty girls from town, with their flowing dresses and lace-bound hair. Either way, the friction was intensifying, and Catrin feared it would escalate beyond control. Anyone from the countryside was a target, but it was her friend Osborne Makano, son of a pig farmer, who bore the brunt of their abuses. The low regard in which his family profession was held and his unassuming manner made him an easy target. He had never fought back, and still the attacks continued. Chase, Catrin's beloved cousin, felt they should stand up for themselves since passive resistance had proven fruitless. What choice did they have? Catrin understood his motives, but to her the problem seemed unsolvable. Surely retaliation would not end the struggle, but neither had inaction, which left her in a quandary. Chase seemed to think they needed only to scare the townies once to make them realize such treatment would not be tolerated. That, he said, was the only way to gain their respect, if not their friendship. She could see his logic, but she also saw other, less appealing possibilities, such as a swift and violent response, or even expulsion from the school lessons. Too many things could go wrong. Chase was determined, though, and she would support him and Osborne in their fight, if that was their choice but she did not have to like it. From bribing a woman who had once worked as Peton's nursemaid, Chase learned that Peton had a terrible fear of snakes. Any snake, not just the venomous varieties. Chase planned to catch a snake and sneak it into the hall during lessons, though he admitted he had no plan for getting it near Peton without being seen. Just thinking about it, Catrin began to feel queasy, and she concentrated even more on her work. As she slid the heavy barn door closed to keep out the wind, she was submerged in darkness and had to re-sweep the floor by the light of her lantern. Her father and Benjen, his close friend, were returning from the pastures with a pair of weanlings just as she lugged her saddle into Salty's stall. She watched the skittish colt and filly enter the barn wide-eyed, but they gave the experienced men little trouble and would soon become accustomed to frequent handling. The lamplight cast a glow on Benjen's dark features. Bits of gray showed in his neatly trimmed beard, and his ebon hair was pulled back in a braid, giving him the look of a wise but formidable man. Salty. Catrin's six-year-old chestnut gelding 
must have sensed she was in a rush, for he chose to make her life even more difficult. He danced away from her as she tossed the saddle over his back, and when she grabbed him by the halter and looked him in the eye, he just snorted and stepped on her toes. After pushing him off her foot, she prepared to tighten the girth, and Salty drew in a deep breath, making himself as big as possible. Katrin knew his tricks, and had no desire to find herself in a loose saddle. Kneeing him in the ribs just hard enough to make him exhale, she cinched the strap to the wear marks. Salty nipped her on the shoulder, letting her know he didn't appreciate her spoiling his joke. Dawn backlit the mountains, and heavy cloud cover rode in with the wind. A light spray was falling, and Katrin walked Salty from the low-ceiling barn into the barnyard. Salty danced and spun as she mounted, but she got one foot in the stirrup and a hand on the saddle horn, which was enough to pull herself up even as he pranced. His antics were harmless, but Katrin had no time for them, and she drove her heels into his flanks with a chirrup to urge him forward. In that, at least, he did not disappoint as he leaped to a fast trot. She would have given him his head and let him gallop, but the wagon trail was growing muddy and slick in the steady rain. Cattleman Gerard appeared in the haze ahead, his ox cart leaving churned mud in its wake. Trees lined the narrow trail, and Katrin had to slow Salty to a walk until they cleared the woods. When they reached a clearing, she passed Gerard at a trot, waving as she rode by and he gave her a quick wave in return. Fierce gusts drove stinging rain into her eyes, and she could barely see the master house huddled against the mountains. In the distance, only its massive outline was visible. Harberton materialized from the deluge, and as she approached, the rain dwindled. The cobbled streets were barely damp, and the townsfolk who milled about were not even wet. In contrast, Katrin was bespattered and soaked, looking as if she had been wallowing in the mud. And she received many disapproving looks as she trotted salty through town. The aroma of fresh-baked bread wafting from the bakery made her stomach grumble, and the smell of bacon from the watering hole was alluring. In her rush, she had forgotten to eat, and she hoped her stomach would not be talkative during the lessons a sure way to irritate Master Edling. She passed the watchtower and the large iron ring that served as a fire bell, and she spotted her uncle, Jensen, as he dropped off Chase on his way to the sawmill. He waved and smiled as she approached, and she blew him a kiss. Chase climbed down from the wagon, looking impish, and Katrin's appetite fled. She had hoped he would fail in his snake hunt, but his demeanor indicated that he had not, and when the leather bag on his belt moved, any doubt she had left her. How he had concealed the snake from her uncle was a mystery, but that was Chase, the boy who could do what no one else would dare attempt. His mother and hers had died fifteen years before, on the same day and under mysterious circumstances. No one understood what killed them. Since then, Chase had seemed determined to prove that he wasn't afraid of anything or anyone. 
Katrin pulled Salty up alongside him, and they entered the stables together. Once clear of the gate, she turned to the right, hoping to slip into her usual stall unnoticed. But instead, she saw another insult. All the stalls were taken, despite there being plenty for those students who rode. Many of the townies, including Peton, rode to the lessons even though they were within walking distance. In a parade of wealth and arrogance, they flaunted their finely made saddles with gilded trim. It seemed they now felt they needed pages to attend their mounts, and they, too, must ride. It was the pages' horses that had caused the shortage of stalls. Katrin stopped Salty and just stared, trying to decide what to do. What's going on, Cat? Chase bellowed. Have the townies gotten so fat they need two horses to carry each of them? Hush. I don't want any trouble, she said with a pointed glance at his writhing bag. I'll stable Salty at the watering hole. Strom may let you stable him there, but certainly not for free. Where does it stop, Cat? How much abuse do they think we'll tolerate? He asked, sounding more incensed with every word. I don't have time for this right now. I'll see you at the lesson, she said, turning Salty. Chirrupping, she gave him a bit of her heels, trotted him around the block, and slowed only when she neared Baker Hollis, who was busy sweeping the walk. He gave her a sidelong glance and shuffled into the bakery. Inside, Katrin saw his daughter, Trinda, who stared with haunted eyes. She rarely left the bakery, and it was said she spoke even less often. Most thought she was daft but Katrin suspected something entirely different, something much more sinister. As she turned into the alley behind the watering hole, she whistled for Strom, who emerged from the stable looking tired and irritable. Cripes, it's early, Cat. What brings you here? He asked, rubbing his eyes. He had once attended the lessons and had been friends with Katrin and Chase. After his father died, though... He had gone to work as a stable boy for Miss Maris to help support his mother. He was shunned by most. His humble circumstances and departure from the lessons marked him as undesirable in the eyes of many, but Katrin enjoyed his company and considered him a good friend. I'm sorry to wake you, but I really need to stable Salty here today. The stable at the academy is full, and I'm already late. Please let me stable him here. Just for today, she asked with her most appealing look. If Miss Maris finds out, she'll have my hide for a carpet. I can only stable a horse if the owner patronizes the inn and pays a copper for the stall, he said. Digging into her coin purse, Katrin pulled out a worn silver half she'd been saving for an emergency. She tossed it to Strom. Buy herself something to eat and Take good care of Salty for me. I have to go, she said as she grabbed her waxed pad from her saddlebags. Strom rolled the coin across his knuckles as she sprinted away. I hate to take your money, Cat, but I assure you it won't go to waste, he shouted. Katrin raced back to the academy, turning toward the lesson hall at a full run. Master Baron shouted for her to slow down 
but she was nearly there. She reached the door and opened it as quietly as she could, but the hinge betrayed her, squeaking loudly. Everyone in the room turned to see who would be the target of Master Edling's ire, and Katrin felt her face flush. She entered with mumbled apologies and quickly sought a vacant desk. The townies gave her nasty looks and placed their wax tablets on the empty chairs near them, clearly indicating she was not welcome. In her rush to reach the desk next to Chase... Her wet boots slipped on the polished floor, leaving her suspended in the air for an instant before she hit with a crash. The air rushed from her lungs with a whoosh, and the room erupted in laughter. As soon as she regained her breath, she immediately held it, seeing Chase take advantage of the distraction. He slinked behind Peton and slid the leather pouch under his chair. The drawstrings were untied and the top lay open, but nothing emerged. Katrin stood and quickly took the seat between Chase and Osborne, still blushing furiously. This isn't going to go well for you, Cat. Edling looks boiled, Osborne whispered, but Master Edling interrupted in a loud voice. Now that Miss Volker has seen fit to join us, Perhaps she will allow us to commence. What say you, Miss Volker? Shall we begin, or do you need more leisure time? He asked, looking down his nose, and several of the townies sniggered, casting her knowing glances. Katrin just mumbled and nodded. She was grateful when Master Edling began his lecture on the Holy War. At least he was no longer adding to her embarrassment by making a bigger fool of her. When Istra last graced the skies, he began, the Jean and Varric nations waged a holy war that lasted hundreds of years. That concludes this episode of Call of the Herald. For more information and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening.